1: Hi everyone, and welcome to 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. The two golden age radio shows, Escape and Suspense, were radio's leading anthology series of high adventure and drama, with Escape airing on CBS Radio from July 7, 1947 to September 25, 1954, and Suspense continued to 1962. These two shows presented great American-made radio drama, which became the foundation for TV. Radio, as you know, is purely acoustic, with no visual component, and it relied on great scriptwriters and actors to enable the listeners to imagine the characters and the story. It was high drama, great acting, and terrific stories. As one of the shows say, all designed to free you from the four walls of today. Here we offer the very best of escape and suspense. We hope you enjoy this week's presentation. And if you do, send us a kind review for 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. And now, our two stories.
2: Set up with the everyday grind? Tired out from the summer heat? Want to get away from it all?
3: We offer you Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You
2: are spurring a lathered horse through darkened streets, trapped by two hostile armies, with a kit of magic in your pocket, and the American Revolution in the balance. <laughs>
3: Tonight, we escape to an earlier day and to the workshop of a famous wizard, as Stephen Vincent Benet told it in his delightful story, A Tooth for Paul Revere.
4: Some say it all happened because of Hancock and Adams, and some put it back to the Stamp Act and before. In there's some that hold out for Paul Revere and his little silver box... But the way I heard it, the American Revolution broke out because of Lige Butterwick and his tooth. My great-aunt was a Butterwick, and I heard it from her. Every now and then, she'd write it out and want to get it put in the history books, but they'd always put her off with some trifling sort of excuse. But the way she told it to us kids, sitting there before the flickering fire on some blustery, blowy night, it sounded spooky enough and wonderful enough to be... As true as the Union.
5: History books, bah. You don't get the right of things from such. In the story of a nation, it's the queer corners that count. The tales that get whispered down through families. Now, take Paul Revere, for instance. All most folks think about is his riding a horse. But he was a silversmith by trade... And there was a kind of magic in that hand of his. I could see just a little bit farther into the millstone than most folks. And in that little shop of his on those fateful nights, he sat over a miraculous flame and brewed the revolution in a silver teapot. And then he put it into a little silver bath. No bigger than
4: this. Yes, that's the way my great-aunt talked about Paul Revere. And the chills ran up our spines. But it takes all kinds to make a country, she used to say. And it isn't till the plain ones, like Lige Butterwick, get stirred up, that things really start to happen. Lige... It was just an ordinary sort of man, without special vision into a millstone. It might be a grand day in the history books, but for him it was just Tuesday, till he read about it in the papers. Folks could argue and fret about Boston tea parties and British warships in Boston Harbour and British soldiers in Boston streets. But Lige Butterwick just plucked his tongue and wondered how the corn might stand this year on his farm outside Lexington, Massachusetts. One day, Lige Butterwick woke up with a toothache. The hot salt pack and the tansy tea his wife fixed for him didn't seem to help much. On the third day, Mrs. Butterwick tied a string to the tooth and Lige stood by the door. You ready? Uh (coughs) Uh-huh. Well? Martha?
6: When it came to the pinch, couldn't quite do it.
4: So that's how Lige Butterwick came to ride into Lexington, Massachusetts, that day. He just had to see somebody about that tooth. And when he got there, the town was in an uproar. Lige!
2: Lige Butterwick! Eh?
4: Oh. Good day to you, neighbor
2: Williams. Lodge, I didn't expect to see you here today.
6: It's my tooth.
2: Tooth? What do you mean?
6: Uh, a heart. Huh?
2: Oh? Isn't it exciting?
6: Exciting? The toothache?
2: No, no, you idiot. All this. <laughs> Have you seen them yet? Seen who? Why, Hancock and Adams, of course. John Hancock and Sam Adams. They're at the Parson Clarks. Only folks who come here
6: to see was the barber. I figure he's the only one who can do something for my tooth. Uh,
2: You don't fool me, Lige. You're probably just as excited as I am. Have you cleaned your musket?
6: Musket? Why, it's five months, the hunting season, (laughs) yeah.
2: That's where you're wrong, Lige. Looks like hunting season may be early this year. Keep your powder dry. Uh,
4: Huh? And so Lige Butterwick came to Lexington, and it was a great day for the history books, and to him it was just Tuesday. And his tooth was jumping, and he we went to see the barber as the likeliest man he knew to pull a tooth. But the barber took one look at it and shook his head.
7: Now, I can pull her out all right, Lige, but uh, she's got long roots and strong roots, and she's going to leave an awful gap when she's gone. Hmm, that's true. Now, what you really need, though it's corstic my business, one of these here artificial teeth that go there in the hole. Artificial teeth? hey yeah. Land of mercy, it's flying in the face of nature. Nothing of the kind, Lodge. Artificial teeth is all the gold these days. Lexington ought to keep up with the times, but. but it would do me no good to see you with an artificial tooth. Yes, indeed, it would. It would do
6: you good, but, uh. Supposing I did want one, how
7: in Tunket would I get it in Lexington? Now, you just leave that all to me. You'll have to go into Boston, but I know just the man. Here, if I can find it. and yeah. yeah, had his prospectus here somewhere. Oh! No. Oh, yes, here. See here? Uh Uh-huh. This fellow called Revere in Boston that fixes him, and they say he's a boss workman. Revere? Yes. Now, you just listen to this here. Whereas many persons were so unfortunate as to lose their foreteeth, uh, that's you, Lodge. Oh, yeah. uh, To their great detriment, not only in looks, but in speaking, both in public and private. This is to inform all such that they can have them uh, replaced by artificial ones. I see. That will look as well as the natural and answer the end of speaking to all intents. Hmm. Oh, yes, and then see, it goes on. Here for, oh, his name, yes, his name's right here. Uh, Paul Revere, goldsmith, near the head of Dr. Clarksworth in Boston. Hmm. Sounds well enough, but what's it going to cost? Oh, I, I know Revere. Comes through here pretty often, as a matter of fact. Does? Yes, and he's a decent fellow, even if he is. a pretty big bug and sounds lip-tay. Now, you just mentioned my name. Well, uh,
6: it's something I hadn't thought of, hmm. but... And for a penny, and for a pound. Hmm. Mr. Day's work already, and that tooth's got to come out before I go stark staring mad. But what sort of man is this Revere, anyway? Oh, he's a regular wizard. A regular wizard with his tools. Wizard? Hmm. I don't know about wizards, but if he can fix my
4: tooth, I'll call him one. So? Lige Butterwick got back on his horse and started for Boston. He rode through the busy, excited streets of Lexington, and when he came opposite the residence of Parson Clark, he saw a little crowd collected and men staring, so he stopped his horse for a moment and looked. Mister, is that them?
6: Is it who, son? Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams, sir. There through the window. Tall, handsome man and a short man with a face like a bulldog. Mm, I wouldn't know, son. They're strangers
4: to me. Get up. When he got to Boston, he began to feel queer, and it wasn't only his tooth. He hadn't been there for four years, and he'd expected to find it changed, but it wasn't that either. The sky was clear and beautiful, but Lige felt like there was thunder in the air. It was uncanny. And the people, there'd be little nuts of them on the corners, but when you came up to them, they seemed to melt away, or they'd look at you and stop talking. And then he came to the harbour, out there in the port of Boston, riding black and grim with the British warships. He'd known they'd be there, of course, but it was different somehow, seeing them with their guns pointed in at the town. Suddenly he felt uncomfortable, felt he'd, he'd like to turn and go home. But he was hungry, and so he went to a tavern for a bite. (coughs)
8: <coughs>
4: uh, uh, good day to you. And what may I do for you, stranger?
6: Uh, just a bite and a sup, if you're serving.
4: Aye.
6: Have a seat. You'll be served. Uh, thank you. Uh, nice weather we're having these days.
4: It's bitter weather for Boston.
6: Uh, well, now. Now, maybe for Boston, but out in the country, we'd call it good planting weather.
4: I guess maybe I was mistaken in you. It is good planting weather for some kind of trees.
6: Uh, trees? Well, now, I suppose you're right about that.
2: that. Is that so? And what kind of trees would you be thinking of? There's trees and trees, you know.
4: Uh, well, uh, now that you ask you me, You meant I... the Liberty Tree. And may it soon be watered in the blood of tyrants. Oh!
2: the Royal Oak of England, and God save King George and Loyalty! Add him, boys! Wait, stop.
8: I didn't move.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Glory, I always heard city folks were crazy. But politics must be getting serious in these American colonies when they start fighting about trees.
5: aye,
2: and it is, friend...
6: So they threw you out, too?
2: Yes, blast them. But I want to shake your hand nobly done, friend. I'm glad to find another true hearted man loyal to the crown in this pestilent, rebellious city.
6: Well, I don't know as I quite agree with you about that. But I came here to get my tooth fixed, not to talk about politics. And as long as you've spoken so pleasant, I wonder if you could help me out. You see, I'm from Lexington Way, and I'm uh, looking for a fellow named Paul Revere.
2: Paul Revere? No, so it's Paul Revere you want, my worthy and ingenious friend from the country. Well, I'll tell you how to find him.
6: Good, I thank you.
2: You go up to the first British soldier you see and ask the way, but uh, you'd better give the password first.
6: Password? Yes,
2: you say to that British soldier, any lobsters for sale today? And then you ask about Revere. Uh,
6: But why do I talk about lobsters first?
2: Well, you see, the British soldiers wear red coats, so they like being asked about lobsters. Just try it and see. (laughs) Just try it, my friend, and see. Hup, hup,
6: hee, ho! Uh, pardon me, sir. Uh, do you have any lobsters for sale today?
2: What? How dare you seize that man? <laughs>
6: uh, barrel, place to hide...
9: Down that way,
4: come on,
6: Sergeant Psst,
4: huh? You can come out now, they've gone past
6: Oh, oh yes, thank you Uh,
7: Nice, look at your clothes That was a tar barrel you jumped into
6: Yes, I'm a sight.
7: What were they chasing you for?
6: I really don't know. Guess I didn't give the right password. Password? Yes, but all the same, I don't think soldiers ought to act like that when you ask them a civil question. But city folks are soldiers. They can't make a fool out of me. I came here to get my tooth fixed and get it fixed at will if I have to surprise the whole British kingdom to do it.
8: Good for
7: you, sir. Uh, Can I be of any help to you?
6: Ah, you can, boy. Uh, tell me where I may find the silversmith, Paul Revere. Oh, that's easy. Right before your eyes.
7: There's a sign hanging down by the wharf. And that's his shop. I work there.
6: Well, now, those soldiers did me a good turn after all. Come on, boy. Now maybe I'll get my tooth fixed.
4: Then Lige Butterwick was in the shop of Paul Revere. Silversmith, goldsmith, jack-of-all-trades, sculpturer of artificial teeth, Brewer of Revolutions, Wizard. The shop itself was small and dark, with mysterious shadows lurking in the corners and the back. It was crammed full of the wondrous products of its owner's skillful hand, gold and silver objects of great beauty, prints of Boston and caricatures of the British, art boxes and bottles filling the shelves. At this particular moment, it was also full of customers, and Lige Butterwick, with the cautious shyness of the countryman, sank back into a corner seat out of the way and watched as Paul Revere waited on several customers. And the last of these was a grand lady who looked like a, an irate turkey goblin.
0: Oh, Master Revere, I am so disappointed. When I took the things from the box, I could just have cried.
4: It's I who am
6: disappointed, madam. What was the trouble? Must have been carelessly packed. Was it badly dented? No. I'll speak to the
7: boy. No,
0: no, it wasn't dented. But I wanted a really impressive silver service. Something I can use when the the governor comes to dine with us. I certainly paid for the best. And what have you given me?
6: I've given you the best work of which I'm capable, madam. It was in my hands for six months. And I think they're capable hands. Oh,
0: I know you were a, a competent artisan master. Uh, but
6: silver, but Smith, ma'am. If well, I don't you care please. what you call
0: it. I know I wanted a real service, something I could show my friends. And what have you given me? Oh, it's silver if you choose. But it's just as plain as a picket fence.
7: <laughs> Simple? Plain.
6: You pay me high compliments, madam.
0: Mm, Compliments, indeed. I'll send it back tomorrow. Why, there isn't as much as a lion or a unicorn on the cream jug. And I told you I wanted the sugar bowl covered with silver grapes. But you've given me something as bare as the hills of New England. And I won't stand it, I tell you. I'll send to London instead.
6: Send away, madam. We're making new things in this country. New men. New silver. Perhaps who knows a new nation. (sighs) Plain, simple... Bare as the hills and rocks of New England, graceful as the boughs of elm trees. If my silver were only like that, indeed. But that's what I wished to make it. As for you, madam, with your lions and unicorns and grape leaves and your nonsense of bad ornamentation done by bad silversmiths, your imported bad taste and your imported British manners, puff! What? Away with you! Puff, puff, puff! Why? Why? Hey, Huff, I say! <gasps> <laughs> William? Yes, sir? <laughs> Put up the shutters. We are closing for the day. Uh, oh, William, no word yet from Dr. Warren? Not yet, sir. <clears throat> yeah, what's that? Well, who are you there in the corner? Well, Mr. Vere. It is Mr. Vere, isn't no? it? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, it's a kind of a long story, but. Uh, Closing or not, you got to listen to me. The barber told me so. The barber? You see, I'm Lige Butterwick, and it's my tooth. Uh, I'll, I'll tooth on. Uh, <laughs> You'd uh, you'd better begin at the beginning. Uh, oh, but wait now, here. You don't talk like a Boston man. Where'd you come from? Oh, around Lexington way. And you Lexington, see Lexington, uh, were you there this morning? Well, of course I was. That's where the barber I Never told mind you about the barber. Were Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams still at Parson Clark's? Well, uh, there might have been, for all I know. But I couldn't say. Great heaven is there a man in the American colonies who don't know Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams? Well, there seems to be me. But uh, speaking of strangers, uh, there was two of them staying at the Parsonage when I rode past. One was a handsome man. The other man uh, looked more like a bulldog. So they are still there. And the British ready to march. Did you see many soldiers as you came to my shop, Mr. Butterwick? See them? They chased me into a tar barrel. There was a whole parcel of them by the common with guns and flags. Looked as if they meant business. Thank you, Mr. Butterwick. You're a shrewd observer. You've done me and the colonies an invaluable service. Well, that's nice to know. But uh, speaking of this tooth... <laughs> You're a stubborn man, Mr. Butterwick. All the better. I like stubborn men. I wish we had more of them. Well, one good turn there's another. You've helped me. I'll do my best for you. I've made artificial teeth, but drawing them is hardly my trade. All the same, let's have a look. Here, come over here by the light. Aye. And now, open. Ah. Yeah. Well, Mr. Butterwick, it appears to be compound agglutinated infraction of the upper molar... Oh. And I'm afraid I can't do anything about it tonight. Uh, but but uh, here's a draft that will ease the pain for a while. There. Drink. <clears throat> it's, um, it's spicy and uh, and queer. <laughs> Never mind. Now you. Go to a tavern, get a night's rest. Come back see me in the morning. I'll find a truth drawer for you. If I'm here. Oh, yes, sir. you'd best have some liniment. Uh, that's a queer kind of shop you have here, Mr. Vere. <laughs> some folks think so. Say, uh, what's in that little bottle? Where? Oh, there. That's a little chemical experiment of mine. I call it Essence of Boston. But there's a good deal of the East Wind in Essence of Boston? Well, they did say you was a wizard. It's genuine magic, I suppose. Genuine magic, of course. And here. Here's the box with your liniment. It <laughs> No, no. Not that one. This one. Ah, thank you. Uh but that other little box there, the little silver one with the stars on it and the elm tree. Oh, yes. You like it? Pick it up. Yeah, mighty pretty work. Thank you. My own design. Thirteen stars there. See them? Uh-huh. You could make a very pretty design with stars for a new country sake. If you wanted to. I've sometimes thought of it. But, um, uh, wh- what's in the box? It... Feels queer. What's in it? What's in the air round us? Gunpowder? War? Making of a new nation. But the time isn't ripe yet. Not quite right. You mean that this here revolution that folks keep talking about? Yes. In this box? Glory be.
0: Master Revere. It's come, it's come. The message from Dr. Warren.
6: William, my riding boots. Now, hurry, I must be off. Sorry, Mr. Butterwick, but I must rush. Take your liniment and come back tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Yes, if I'm back tomorrow, I'll help you. Yes,
1: Good day, sir. Good
4: day. It wasn't till Lige Butterwick was alone in his room at the tavern where he was to stay the night that he realized what he had done. In the bustle and haste of leaving Mr. Revere's shop, he had picked up the wrong box. Instead of the box of liniment, he held in his hand the little silver box with the 13 stars upon it. He hadn't quite believed Mr. Revere when he talked about the box, but then everything had seemed so almighty queer since he'd arrived in Boston. And his toothache and his head felt light and he being human was curious he looked for a keyhole but there was none the box wouldn't open he shook it suddenly it felt warm as if there was something alive inside it he held it to his ear Great Godfrey. Now, Elijah Butterwick was feeling scared. But he was feeling kind of good, too. And then he found out that he was talking to himself. Well, I'm not a Britisher. I'm a New Englander. And
6: maybe there's something beyond that. Something people like Hancock and Adams know about. And if it has to come with the revolution, well, I guess it has to come. Can't stay British as forever here in this country. What am I going to do with this box? Too big a job for one man. Guess we'll have to take this back to Paul Revere.
4: First, he went to the little shop on Clark's Wharf. But it was closed up tight. And it was a while before he could rouse anyone. Then it was the boy, William, who opened the door.
8: Oh, it's you.
4: Well...
6: Master Revere isn't here. But I've got to find him. Can you tell me where he's gone? Why do you want to know? Got something for him. He needs it. You wouldn't be a spy for the British now, would you? A spy? Me? Well, then what is it you got for him? This box. Little silver box. Took it by mistake. Think it's important. The box? By the flag it isn't Potten.
0: But he's gone. Gone to one the Patriots that the British are coming.
6: Uh, Which way, boy? Which way did he go?
0: Uh, Across the river, uh, to Charlestown.
6: All right, thank you, boy. I'll be following.
5: No, you don't get any boats from me. There was a crazy man along here an hour ago, and he wanted a boat too. My husband was crazy enough to take him. Do you know what he did? No, ma'am. He made my husband take my best petticoat to muffle the oars so they wouldn't splash when they passed that Britisher ship. My best petticoat, mind you. Huh. When my husband comes back, he's going to get a piece of my mind. Uh,
6: was his name Paul Revere? Was he a man of 40-eyed, keen-looking, kind of Frenchy?
5: Don't know what his right name is, but his name's mud with me. My best petticoat torn into strips and swimming in that nasty river.
6: Uh, thank you, ma'am. I'll get a boat elsewhere.
7: Mr. Butterwick, sir, be careful. Your own is right under the stern of a British man-of-war.
6: Don't worry, i see say it.
7: Please, Mr. Butterwick, shh.
2: Ahoy oh, there. Good day, Mr. Christian. Uh, I guess not. Thought I had a boat. Be careful, Mr. Butterwick.
6: All right, boy.
7: Revere, he's been gone an hour. Gone. Gone where? Riding to Lexington to warn Hancock and Adams as soon as he spied the lights up there in the North Church. I've got to catch him. It's this box. He's got to have it. Where can I get a horse? Right over here. Come on.
4: Out through the darkened streets of Charlestown he rode, on into the black of the countryside. Once he got lost, but he found his way again and rode on. It was just dawn as he came inside of Lexington, and the dew was glistening on the green of the April grass. But Lige Butterwick didn't notice the beauty of the dawn. The little silver box was hot now and burning in his pocket, and then suddenly he reined in his horse. For there on the road were two men carrying a trunk, and one of them was Paul Revere. Well,
6: Mr. Revere, I say, I'm on time for that little appointment about my tooth. Well, um, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> you are a stubborn man, Mr. Budwick. I'll oh, well. But uh, you've given me a merry chase all night. I've had one myself. Been captured by the British once and escaped. Don't know what's still in store for me, but we're carrying a precious cargo here in this trunk. We're bringing to safety all the private papers of Miss Hancock and Miss Adams. Uh, which reminds me, I have uh, something for you here. What? A silver box you have got the silver box. I uh, by mistake, and it's getting frightfully hot in my hand. Yes, my friend, and it's a little wonder. Look across there, Lexington Green. The Green, what? Why, there's a line of Lexington men, and there across the creek, facing them, is a column of British redcoats. Aye. lined up with guns, they are, Mr. Butterwick. They've come to arrest Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams, and the Minute Men stand before them. Mr. Fair, I'm a peaceable man. I've had little notion of politics. But I don't like what I saw in Boston. I don't like soldiers chasing peaceable citizens into tar barrels... or uppity ladies with imported British manners. And I don't like British redcoats on Lexington Green. That I don't. Mr. Bedwick, what are you doing? I'm stamping on yourself a box, Mr. Revere. I'm breaking it open. Do You know what you've done. You've let out the American Revolution... Look, they've fired the first shots. Well, I guess it's about time. And I guess I'd better be going now. Uh, but Mr. Butterwick, where are you going? Home. Got a musket on the wall there. I'll be needing it. Uh, but here, yeah, what about your tooth? Oh, a tooth's just a tooth. But a country's a country. Anyhow, doesn't ache anymore. more. <laughs>
3: Escape, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, tonight brought you A Tooth for Paul Revere by Stephen Vincent Benet, adapted for radio by John Dunkel, and featuring Harry Bartell as Lige Butterwick, Parley Bear as Paul Revere, and Barry Kroger as the narrator. Special music by Ivan Ditmars. Next week, you are deep in a fabulous cavern in a mountain,
2: surrounded by a horde of angry natives from a lost world held at the mercy of the most beautiful woman in the world, the terrible queen called
3: She. Next week, we escape with H. Ryder Haggard's famous story, She. Good night, then, until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape... This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the US, more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
2: Bet up with the everyday grind, tired out from the summer heat,
3: Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure.
2: You are deep in a fabulous mountain cavern, surrounded by a horde of menacing natives from a lost civilization, held at the mercy of the most beautiful woman in the world the terrible queen called She.
3: Tonight, we escape to uncharted Africa and to an incredible adventure as H. Ryder Haggard described it in his fantastic story, She. She.
4: In those days, I was a professor of archaeology at Oxford. And though this may account for my being able to understand some of those strange events which occurred later, it was in no respect the reason for my becoming involved in them. No, the real reason was unbelievably simple. I walked through the caves of the dead in the terrible and ancient city of Cor, crossed the awful abyss and looked upon the flame of life, only because I was one of the ugliest men in England. Because of my appearance, I had made few acquaintances and only two close friends. Roger Vinci first, and following his death, his son, Leo, whom he left behind. And it was that friendship which brought Leo Vinci to my chambers off the quadrangle. Late in the evening of the day, he became 25 years old.
9: Today was the first I knew of that Harley, when the attorneys called me in. Yes. They said Father instructed them the week before he died to give me the letter and this little bronze chest... On my 25th
4: birthday. That's strange. I mean, the chest. Designs on the lid show Egyptian influence. It must be very old. Well, according to Father's letter, it contains something over 2,000
9: years old. Really? <laughs> must have considered it rather important. He's closed the cover with a lead seal. Yes, I see. At any rate, Holly, the letter doesn't tell
4: us much. Suppose we.
9: Uh, suppose we see what's inside. <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right. I have a geology hammer here somewhere, my boy. Uh, here we are. A chisel. Now you hold it in place on the table. Here, uh, huh? Go ahead. All right. Ah, there, it's pulling loose. Yes. Ah, I did it. Well, oh. <laughs> here it goes. What the devil is that? Why, it's a clay tile. An old Egyptian writing tablet. Yes, it's the kind used about the time of Nectarnabes, around 340 B.C. But the writing on it, it's not Egyptian, it's Greek. Yes, and parts of it are broken away. Oh, it'll take some time to translate this, Leo. But Father apparently did it, Holly, according to this paper. Listen, here's his translation. Read it.
9: I, Aminartes, wife of Calacrates, say this to you, my son. Forced to escape the wrath of the great Nectarnabes... I thought so. Your father and I fled southward across the waters and wandered for twice twelve moons upon the coast of Libya... That's
4: the old name for Africa, you know.
9: Ah, uh, that faces the rising sun. There by the mouth of a river where stands facing the sea a great mountain carved like the head of an Ethiopian. What is it Ah, here? uh, uh, Nothing, Harley. It it, it goes on. Uh, Following the river, we soon fell among... There's a row of asterisks here. That must uh, be
4: one of the places where the tile's broken. Go on, my boy. Uh,
9: To a hollow mountain where a great city once stood and to the terrible caves of which no man had seen the end and, and to she who must be obeyed.
4: She who must be? What's wrong, Leo?
9: I don't know, Holly. There's something familiar about that name, but I've
4: never heard it before.
9: Strange. Well, well, come on, get on with it. She who must be obeyed, who did lead us by awesome ways to the place where the great pit is, whose voice is like thunder. And she did show to us the rolling pillar of life, and did stand in the flames. And she spake unto my... And there's a large fragment missing here. Oh, fragrancy. There isn't very much more. Picks up, uh, carried far away on the ships where I gave birth to thee, and came hither to Athens at last. Oh. So I say to thee, by these things which I have told... Seek out this place. Nor stay thy will until thou hast the secret of life for thyself. Sit then on the throne with the Pharaoh. And that's all, Holly. Now, what's it all about?
4: Leo, if your father knew, he kept it to himself. I don't know. It's all very strange. Yes.
9: (laughs) Well, we'll know as soon as we reach the place.
4: (laughs) I was hoping you'd say that. If you decided not to...
9: I think I should have had a try at finding it alone. I can't do anything else, Holly. It's it's more than curiosity. It's almost a compulsion. There's such a familiar feeling about all this. Even that mountain, Holly, shaped like the head of an Ethiopian. Yes, what about? Well, off and on, ever since I was a kid, I've dreamed about a mountain like that. But why, Holly? Why should I?
4: That was the beginning. And some three months later, we drifted down the east coast of Africa, south of Zanzibar, searching the miles of jungle shores for the mountain carved like a head. There were four of us in the tiny sailing dhow, Leo and I, of course, along with Abdullah, the Arab boatman we'd hired in Arden, and finally a solid north countryman named Job, my servant for many years. We'd caught no sight of our landmarkers yet, but a native had told us of seeing it once years before, somewhere to the south. So our hopes held high, and we were confident luck was with us. And so it was, until one evening, just in dark. That's a pretty stiff wind, Holly. Yes. Do you think Abdullah knows what he's doing? We're rather close inshore, all right, Leo. I doubt if there's any danger, unless a squall hits. Hey, by gauzey, we're strangers here in an eathen land and all. Anything could happen. It could, Joe, but let's assume that it won't. <laughs> huh? How's the dory making out back there? All oh, trailing along all right behind us. Be in a bad spot if we lost it. We our guns, food, equipment and everything in it. Yes, I know, Joe. Leo, perhaps we shouldn't have packed the stuff that way, Leo. They should have kept it on board with no, us.
9: No, no, Holly. We want to be ready to shove off up the river as soon as we sight that head.
4: It would be a tough job loading that boat at sea. Uh, we may not have had to, Leo. We've certainly found no reason to so far. But we
8: will. I've dreamed of it. Ah, ah, huh? ah. Hey, Master Ollie, look. It's the wind, The wind's Ollie. driving the water ahead of it. Abdullah. Lay under that tiller and head her into it. I'll give him a hand,
4: Holly. Come, right. yeah, we've got a chance. Sir. Hold under the mast, Joe. We shall all be the, yeah. the great wave plunged over us, tore away the dory, swamped the dhow beneath our feet, and hurled us headlong into the foaming sea. Half smothered, fighting to stay afloat, borne shoreward by the drive of the tempest, we were tossed at last, one by one, up onto the rain swift beach. Calm dawn found us huddled together on the sand at the fringe of a dark and forbidding jungle. At the south lay the mouth of a small river, and to the north, the beach ended at the slope of a rocky headland. Leo and Job went to look at the wrecked dory, lying at the water's edge a hundred yards away. While I searched the shoreline for some sign of our boatman, I found none, and we never saw Abdullah again.
9: Oh, Holly. Find any, any trace of him, Holly?
4: No sign, Leo. The thread is gone for good. Oh, it's too bad. What shapes the door, in Job? Wrecked. Not a chance of fixing it. But the equipment seems to be all right, sir. Oh, good. It's
9: all there. Isn't yes, it? most of it. The lashing's held and the waterproof cases stood up very well. Only trouble is we're afoot.
4: Yes, we're going to have a lot of trouble following the coastline.
9: We won't follow any coastline, Holly. What? We're going up that river. We're... Take a look at that headland there to the north. Yeah. It shows up better from the wreck, Holly, but with the sun coming up now, you can see it from here, too.
8: Why, oh.
4: goom it,
9: shaped like a human egg? That's it! That's the landmark! Right, Holly. And that's the river Colocratius followed with his wife, the same one we're going to follow. Oh, but, Leo, with the boat gone, we shall have to break trail
4: through that jungle and follow that riverbank. Yes,
9: we'd better get started. Uh, lo- Look, uh, gentlemen, why can't we
4: just stay here and try to signal oh, some oh, ship? Oh, no, no, there's not Joe. much
9: chance of it, job. They stay pretty clear of this coast.
4: But anyway, this is what we've been looking for. I don't really know what we are looking for, Leo. It's been more than 2,000 years since Callicrates went up that river, and things must have changed a great deal by now. Holly,
9: Holly, that carved head up there in the mountain,
4: it looks exactly the way it always did
9: when I dreamed about it. It's incredible. I've I've got a a strange feeling that whatever Callicrates and his wife found back there in the jungle will still be waiting there today.
4: For five hot, steaming days, we pushed inland through the jungle... ...following the banks of the muddy river. Mile by mile, the creeping undergrowth became more dense. The river shallowed and became sluggish. And the swamplands began to stretch out from the low banks. Foul pools and stagnant lagoons full of soft black mud... ...covered over with a green scum made every step a hazard. Crocodiles slid away at our approach... ...and bright-colored snakes did out from underfoot. Mile after mile, we forced our way through those evil swamps. Each mile more difficult. And finally came the morning of the sixth day.
9: Oh, I don't know, Holly. If it gets any worse, we'll never make it. Uh, excuse
4: me, butting in, gentlemen. But yes, Joe. I, I say we should turn back. Oh, no, Joe. We've spent... Five days getting this far. It'd be a shame to waste it. It's
9: just the way I feel. We'll keep on as long as we can. Oh, what, Leo? Oh, I know, I know. I stumbled over something in the mire. Here, take a look at it.
4: It's a rock. Look. Yes. It's a square stone. It's been hand cut. There, there's another. It's a section of an old wall of some sort. of a dike. That's it, Holly. A long time ago, the river was held between stone dikes along here. Like a sort of canal, it's possible that might account for the swampland. The dikes gradually fell to pieces uh, and the river spread out through the jungle. Of course.
9: And Holly, there could be only one reason for building them. So that boats or barges could come in from the ocean
4: to some kind of a city. A city, gentlemen, yes. why don't we turn back while we, we can? can. A city, it had to be a long time ago, centuries ago, it earlier. could still be there, Holly. This
9: place has never been explored. Nobody would ever try to come through these swamps. That so it
4: may include us if it keeps... Joe, what's the matter with you? He must be... Oh, oh, look. Natives. Ah. Where the devil did they come from? I don't know. Ooh, strange-looking brutes. Look at those clothes they're wearing. Yes, I've never seen any quite like them. Except in... Hey, go... Do you recognize that dialect? No, it's a little like Arabic. I might try that. Uh, I've never heard anything like it before. They seem to
9: want us to come along with them, Holly. Yes. You think we'd better chance it? Well, they outnumber us 30 to 1, Leo. Yes, and they're all carrying those stabbing knives. Well,.
4: Back as a dango. Well,
9: Hang on to your guns. They don't seem to know what they're for. Let's go.
4: Our strange escort moved rapidly ahead, twisting and turning as they followed some well-remembered trail of their own. We rested during the night on a hummock of dry ground and then struck out again at dawn. It was late afternoon when we left the swamp and climbed up a long slope to the foot of the rock-walled mountain. Reaching its base, we entered the mouth of a great cavern, and a short way inside, we led into a small side chamber, carved from the living rock and lighted by a reed wick floating in a jug of oil. And then the strange natives went away and left us, and we sat about on the floor, trying to plan some course of action.
10: <sighs> oh dear.
9: Oh. How long do you suppose we've been here,
4: Holly? Close to two hours, I'd say. Yeah. It must be dark outside by now.
9: Holly, do you have any idea what race they belong to? They're not like any other natives in this part of Africa.
4: Oh, I've seen people much like them in some of the villages in southern Egypt, Leo. But I don't know any more about it than that.
9: They wear those odd tunics, too. Cotton or linen, I suppose. Those bronze headbands. Must have been out of contact with the rest of the world for
4: centuries, Ollie. Heathens, that's what they are, and up to no good so far as we're concerned. That's you what may i you be right, think. Joe, but I still want to find out about the other things Amenazis wrote on the tile the city of Kor, and the pillar of fire, and she who must be obeyed. We found yeah. the caves, at least. Though I can't see anything
9: so
3: terrible
4: about them. Perhaps we haven't seen everything in the cape.
3: Huh? Oh. Oh.
4: Our little chum.
3: Zeni oh. Bachop.
4: He seems to want us to follow him. Mm. Well, hang on
9: to your guns. Right you are. Stick close together. Don't let them separate us. All right, Job? Come, let's go.
4: A strange guide led us along the twisting, branching passageways, lighting our way with a flaming torch that threw weird shadows on the walls of solid rock. Now and then we passed side chambers lined with long rows of stone slabs. And Then I saw that each slab held the sheeted figure of a human body. And I realized these caves were one vast crypt filled with the mummified bodies of some vanished race. Gradually as we moved on, a most remarkable sound began to grow louder, made up of the guttural voices of a crowd, the throbbing of drums and the moan of some strange musical instrument. Suddenly the narrow passage opened out into a great hollowed cavern where natives danced and postured in the eerie glare from a hundred huge torches placed about the walls. I stared in amazement, the torches were flaming mummies, tied upright to the posts, and the guide had lighted our way through the passages with a human arm. Nebok, where's Jane? I, I think he means for us to walk toward that platform in the centre. Yes, there's a pit of coals burning in the top of it. Nebok, yes, let come on. Watch it, Holly. I don't like the looks of this. Not I. Keep your gun handy, Leo. Stay right with us, Joe. They look anything but friendly. If anything starts, try to get on the platform. They've got no weapons except those stabbing knives. Remember. Here we are. Now what?
5: The bandit.
4: It's quite some fire they've got built up. I Can't understand what they (gasps) mean. Joe! Joe!
9: Joe! Look out, Holly! They've killed Joe. The devils back against the wall, Leo. Uh, Watch it! Here they come.
8: All right, you!
2: step, Job without a chance there.
8: <coughs> what are you left? Holly, let's try for um, the free... Uh,
4: what the deuce is this?
9: Old man in a long
8: white robe.
4: Hold your gun ready, Leo. We'll see what happens.
8: Never, Andy. Anjibo.
4: Well, they're scared to death of him, whoever he is. Wait, he's coming our way.
8: I presume you speak English, gentlemen. Yes, uh-huh. but you do. Occasionally, natives from the south have come through the swamps, and we have captured them. I have learned many of the languages of the outside world. I am Bilali. Uh,
9: um, uh, Leo Vinci, and, and this is Mr. Holly. I
8: am most sorrowful for the death of your companion. Oh, yes, poor Joe. My children had no excuse They know the law. From now on, you will be allowed to complete freedom. No white man is ever to be eaten. Eaten? That is what would have been done to you. But rest assured, her law is just, and their punishment will be swift. Whose law? That of she who must be obeyed. Holly! This is it, Holly. We're still on the right trail. She has demanded your presence... I have come to take you to the place
4: where she is. Tell me, Bilali, who or what is this, she who must be obeyed? A goddess, a queen, a white woman?
8: I could not say, my son. I have never seen she come along. Again
4: through those tortuous passages... Two of us now, with kindly old Bilali leading the way, until he left us alone at last in a large chamber hung with brilliant coloured silks, fitted with soft divans and lighted by crystal lamps. We stood there several minutes, not speaking, wondering, when suddenly the curtains across the doorway parted and a most amazing figure stood before us. It was swathed in folds of filmy white draperies, with soft. Gauzy veils covering even the face and hands.
10: I bid you welcome to the city of Kor, Calacrates and friend of Calacrates.
9: I uh I, I I'm not Calacrates. I'm Leo Vinci and and this is my friend, Mr. Holly.
10: Leo Vinci. Vengeance. No matter you will understand. Are you? I am she.
4: We, You must forgive us if we find it difficult to understand this. What is all this, the, these caves, the natives? What is Kor?
10: Kor is a great city that rose up and then died many thousand years ago. These are the caves of Kor. The city itself stands farther on, in a huge crater at the heart of the mountain.
9: Are you a descendant of Kor?
10: I came from another place far away, and Kor was dead long before I found it. The natives know me as a fearsome figure in white, and they obey me.
4: They have never seen you?
10: No, Holly. Not one of them has ever seen behind these veils. It's amazing
9: to think that Calacrates must have been here in this same place over 2,000
4: years ago.
10: 2,287 years ago. Colocrates died in this very chamber. You
4: you speak as though you saw it happen.
10: I did see it happen. I killed him. But You couldn't? That was over
9: 2,000 years ago.
10: Yes, and at that time I had been here in Corps for more than 500 years. Impossible. How do you know? You haven't seen me. Well, then you claim to be immortal. Yes, as he could have been had he stepped with me into the flames of life. As you can be, my Callicrates. If you so choose.
4: I, um, <coughs> I, I hope you'll forgive me, but I, I, I can't believe anything so fantastic.
10: Is it proof you need? Proof that I once did an evil act in anger and paid for it by waiting alone through all these centuries? Proof that my waiting is ended now? Then look upon it behind this curtain.
9: A mummy. A mummy like those
10: out in the caves. But look at the face.
8: Leo, it's you.
10: That's you lying there. That is the body of Callicrates, whom I loved and whom I killed in anger when he refused to leave her and stay with me to become immortal. His wife, Aminertes, fled across the mountains and later gave birth to his son, your ancestor. Then,
4: Leo, that clay tile has been handed down in your family for over 20 centuries.
10: I have paid for my sin and I have waited knowing that someday my Callicrates would be born to me again, would come back to Cor and find me.
9: It was as though I had to. I dreamed of that carved mountain before I'd ever seen it. And your
10: name, she who must be obeyed, it struck some chord in my memory the first time I heard it. It is your heart that must be obeyed now, my beloved. The decision is yours whether to leave me once again now that you have found me or to walk with me into the pillar of life. To love me and to become immortal.
9: Yes. I feel somehow that this is the ending of something I've been moving toward all my life. Leo! Oh. Oh, but but it isn't possible. Immortality. And how can you love someone you've never seen?
10: Then you shall see, my beloved. I've worn these veils for you, and for you I...
4: the soft veil slid off from her shoulders and she stood revealed before us the most beautiful woman the world has ever seen
10: will you leave me now my Callicrates, or come with me to the flame of life
4: i'll
9: go with you anywhere anywhere
4: We talked the night away in that chamber, Leo and I fascinated by every word that fell from those lovely lips. She talked of the hidden knowledge of ancient lands, sang softly of her thoughts in rhyme, and spoke once again the words of long-dead poets forgotten by the world. She made us believe in her own immortality and in ours to come. And before dawn, Bill Holly with us, we followed her madly and joyously through the dim and dusty passage that led to the flame of life. We came to a great abyss, with a narrow ledge crossing over it like a rainbow rock. There, Bilali waited, and we three went on alone. At the sight of the awful depths beneath us, Leo and I shuddered in spite of ourselves and moved carefully, step by step. She never hesitated, but swayed along gaily before us like a feather borne on a breeze, Finally, we stood in a vast circular chamber, a great bubble in the earth's crust whose walls were shining black basalt.
9: Holly, Yes? I see there by the wall. It looks like the body of a
10: man. An old philosopher, my beloved, oh. who came here many centuries ago. He sat and watched the flame and could not decide whether he should become immortal. Finally, he died.
4: And you? Have you never regretted becoming immortal?
10: I could not have waited for Callicrates, Holly... ...had I not been immortal. But you, Leo, perhaps you have doubts.
9: Immortality will not even be long enough with you. Where is the flame?
10: Listen. Even now it approaches. It advances and then retreats a never-ending cycle of life. It has moved along its path through this cavern since the beginning of time. Holly, look! Do not fear it, beloved. See. This time I will step into the flame alone... And when it comes again, you may join me. It's like the fire of the
9: sun and the dust of a million diamonds.
4: As the great and terrible pillar of flame approached, she threw off her veils and opened her arms to it, and the eternal fire flowed over her. It passed and left her there. Standing with her head bowed.
9: You, I...
10: Are you all right? It didn't harm you? No, my beloved. Can one find harm in the flame that created life itself? Do you believe that... What? That... What's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. The flame was different somehow. Now that Callicrates has returned, the curse of everlasting life is lifted. Leo... She's aging, growing old. No, I, oh no! I do not. If I go, search for me. Search. Merciful heavens! Oh Where? no, no!
4: Even as Leo's hands reached out to touch her, they closed on a dry heap of soft gray dust. I knew now that neither of us would step into the flame, and I knew we would spend our lives searching through the world for she. I seemed to hear in my mind once again words she had spoken in those glorious hours the night before. I knew that Leo was hearing them too, and that neither of us, so long as we live, ...could ever forget that lovely voice.
10: Nay, not in core... ...but in whatever spot in town or field... ...or by the insatiate sea... ...men brood on buried loves... ...or unforgot... ...or break themselves on some divine decree or would 'er o'erleap the limits of their lot. There, in the tombs and deathless, dwelleth she.
3: Escape. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Tonight brought you She by H. Ryder Haggard. Adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield with editorial supervision by John Dunkel. Featured in tonight's cast were Barry Kroger, Larry Dobkin, Kay Brinker, Ben Wright, and Wilms Herbert. Special music by Ivan Dittmars.
2: (laughs) Next week, you are clinging precariously to a diving, pitching longboat lashed by mountainous seas in the center of a hurricane. And at the helm driving you on is a man bent on revenge and willing to kill for it.
3: Next week, we escape with F.R. Buckley's exciting story, Habit. Good night, then, until this same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
1: Thank you for joining us at 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We try to alternate weeks with two episodes of Escape, One Week, followed by two episodes of Suspense the following week. New episodes of 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense are available every Sunday at noon Eastern time. We always appreciate reviews. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.
11: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?